0: And for the rest of you who are newer to us this morning, welcome. It is so good to have you here and to be able to just worship together. And we're going to turn to the Word of God now and spend some time right now. We're in a series we've called Christ-like, walking through the book of Philippians. And so today we hit Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to read verses 7 to 14 for us. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into it together. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, says... That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I might by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Over the last couple of weeks, like I said, we've been in this letter of Paul to the Philippians and both of the first two sermons from chapter 1 and chapter 2 are online. So if you missed those, you're welcome to jump on our website and catch up. Uh, But today we jump into chapter 3 and continue to consider, as we've been walking through this whole letter, we've been considering what it would mean or look like to pray a very simple prayer, but kind of a bold prayer. So the prayer would sound something like this, that I might know Jesus and be made like him. So we're actually as a church praying that right now. Uh, Many of us have prayed that in different ways and many times throughout our lives, but together again right now in this season as a church, we're praying this bold prayer that we might know Jesus and not just know about him, not just know that he existed, but like to know him intimately and to be known by him, that I might know Jesus and in that knowing come to be made like him. We want to become Christ-like. It's a big prayer. It's a bold prayer. Uh, but it's certainly, I think, uh, a prayer that this this letter kind of births in us. It's, it's, it's many ways, as, he's, as Paul talks and you read this letter, it seems like a, a good and right and exciting answer to that prayer is possible. As you read Paul's experience, his example, and his encouragement to us as a church. Um, so a couple of things to look at in in chapter 3 really quickly before we spend most of our time in verses 12 to 14 today. In the very beginning verses of this chapter, Paul makes this interesting kind of comment and then explains what he means. But he says that he puts no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say that if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it's me. I think it's very interesting. Uh, This right after last week when we talked about humility. So we know Paul's probably not flipping it on its head. He's not trying to be egotistical or try to like brag. He's just saying like, the reality of it is I was born to a Hebrew family, raised well in that family. And part of that raising was that I followed God with everything I could. I did my best. And that led me to be a Pharisee. So it just kept, I just kept doing better. I had a lot of reason to put confidence in the flesh. My, my uh, um, nationality, right? my family of origin, my command of the Scripture, Just sort of how I carried myself. I could have put a lot of confidence there. I'll tell you something. I've come to the place, he says, where I put no confidence in the flesh. None. It's a powerful statement for somebody like Paul. Paul talks about the fact that even in that confidence that he had before, he had persecuted the church and at that time was quite proud of the fact that in a way that was part of how that confidence played out. And now he's come to a place as he's met Jesus where he puts that confidence to bed. He puts it to rest. And it brings us back, I think, to the centrality of humility, the importance of humility that Alexa did such a beautiful job of teaching us about last week when we looked at Philippians chapter 2. That to be Christ-like, to follow Jesus, to come and see the prayer answered, starts with humility. That we lay down the confidence that we've put here, and we let it all land on Jesus. Paul even goes as far as to say, in fact, everything that I had, I counted all as rubbish. I love that. I think that's a great translation, actually. He goes on then in verses 7 to 11, the first verses that I just read for us, to talk about whatever gain that he had being counted as loss, being considered as rubbish, of letting go of all of these things for a much, to trade them in in some ways for something so much better, which was to know Jesus, which was the answer to the prayer that I said we're praying as a church, to know him and be made like him. I lay, it, it all just doesn't even come near stacking up against what it could mean to know the God who created me and to be more and more like him. And so Paul lays those things down, forsaking all else, and I think it brings me back to the first sermon in this series from Philippians 1 when we looked so closely at Paul's phrase when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes in verses 10 to 11 to transition us into uh, sort of an invitation that I want to really focus on today with these beautiful verses. And those of you who've known me well and have walked with me and got emails from me, some of this verse is even at the tagline of some of my, of my emails. But he says this, this beautiful prayer that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. This is the two verses that I pull this prayer out of for us right now as a church, that I might know him and be made like him. Let me ask you a question this morning. I've got a couple of them as we go. But first of all, let me just ask you a simple question. And It's not one you need to answer to me, but one you might want to answer for yourself this morning before we keep going. Do you want to know Jesus? I think a message like this is important. And I hope that even if you would say right now no, that by the end of it, you might have started to wonder if maybe you do. But still, I think it's lost on us a bit if we don't just personally, as, as individuals, stop and say, okay, wait a second, like, do I want to know Jesus? Like Chad's asking us to pray this prayer, do I want to pray that prayer? Do I want to know Jesus and be made like him? I think we've got to start there. Somebody might say to me, not really. I'm good. My encouragement to you this morning is to sit with that question and to consider it. And if there's even just the smallest part of you that says, yeah, if there's a God who created me and he's present here today, I want to know him. And I don't just want to know some version of him that someone else came up with, right? What I don't want to know is a distortion of him, which can be easy to find. If all you ever knew of me was what Alan told you about me, my hope is that that would be pretty good, because I trust Alan. But the reality of it is it might be a little off. The better way to get to know me is to spend time with me, is to live life with me, to encounter me, to walk intimately with me. You'd do better to figure out who I am if you ask my wife, someone who has done that for 25 years. But even still, to sit with someone who knows Jesus really well is such a gift in this, can be so helpful. But the prayer is that I might know him personally. That we together as a church would know him right here, right now in 2023, in this space and time. And so the question, do you want to know Jesus, is an important one. Um, Our catechism that we've been working through over these past few weeks, Jonathan pointed this out to us on Wednesday night, but it says this in the section right before we talk about a rule of life and of prayer. For Christians, knowing and loving God is life's central activity. I love that statement because it's so clear, so simple, so true, so convicting. Because how many times in the week, how many times in a day is it not my central activity? Do I get distracted and pulled away? And I get overwhelmed and I get anxious and I get tempted and I get pulled, you know, in all these directions. But for the Christian, for the, for the follower of Jesus, the heart, the desire is that we would know and love God. And that we, we would be able to live in relationship with him, that to know him and love him is our central activity. Everything else we are, everything else that we do flows out of that place. Certainly we get up to all kinds of things, right? We love our families, and we, we give ourselves to our work, and we, we care for our friends, and we walk in our community, and we, look, we do all kinds of things. But the central activity of our life from which all of that flows is a knowing and a loving of Jesus. For Paul, this is the ultimate um, factor to life. This is what ultimately matters. Paul shows us this. If you look at chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, those are great verses where I just feel like it just like, his his version of this statement just comes flying out when he says things like, all for the sake of Christ. I lay it all down for the sake of Christ. It's all about Jesus. That, That I might know Jesus Christ, my Lord, he says where he says that I might gain Christ. So all of it for the sake of Christ, all that I might know Christ, all that I might gain Christ. In two short verses, he says all three of those things, as if, you know, he wrote it just for guys like me who usually miss it the first or second time. He says, it's all about Jesus, the central activity of my life. And so with these things in tow, as we think about knowing and loving knowing and becoming like Jesus, we move into ch- to verses 12 to 14, and that's where we're going to spend some time here this morning. We'll start with this, where when you look at uh, verse 13, partway through, Paul says, this is my prayer, and this is my goal, and this is my um, priority, but I want you to know, I'm gonna. here comes the humility and truth. I have an I'm not arrived, Paul says. Right? The Apostle Paul. <laughs> right? The one who earlier said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain with some sense of, like, authenticity. <laughs> says, trust me, in this pursuit, in this desire, in this prayer, I've not yet arrived. But I'll tell you what I am. I'm in hot pursuit. I strive. I press on. I pray that prayer. And I pray it regularly. And he says that as he does that, he presses on, and the first thing we'll look at is where he says in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. To know Christ, we must, as verse 10 says, share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. In other words, to follow Jesus, we need to die. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, "If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. If you want to follow me, you need to die. There's a death involved, and part of the forgetting what lies behind requires this death." Here are the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, right after he talks about what it is to be a disciple. This is kind of how he concludes one section where he talks about what it is to follow. He says, "Therefore." Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now there is like a phrase you don't see on the front page of a church's website. (laughs) Want to come be part of us? You have to renounce everything you have. This is going to be a blast. It's like, wow, I don't think Jesus is messing around. I think when he said die, he meant die. I think when he, he calls us to lay it down, he meant lay it all down. This is, this is kind of intense. There is for us a suffering, and I think we share in Christ's suffering in this dying, in denying ourselves to follow Jesus. There is an actual suffering. That I suffer the loss of some of the things that I used to attach my identity to. I suffer the loss of the things that met my needs, if poorly and only for a moment, they're gone. I lose, potentially, some of the other things connected there, be it community or other... There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a loss, a suffering that happens for us when we go to follow Jesus. And certainly this was true for Jesus in his suffering. We're actually in good company. As Jesus laid down, we looked last week at the passage in Philippians 2, where it says, even though he was by the very nature God, he humbled himself becoming a man. Like he he lays down, it says he empties himself. And there's a suffering in that. When when Paul prays that I might know him and be made like him in his suffering and in his death, this is part of what he's talking about. That I would be able to come to a place where I could let go of my you know my reputation and the, the the responsibility to make sure everybody sees me and all these kinds of things. I'm going to let these things go, and there's a there's a suffering or a dying in that. Saying no to sin is is unto life and life to the full, absolutely. But there is a bit of a suffering involved in saying no. There is a bit of a letting go. It's not easy. It's hard. It 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 it, it kind of presses on us. So much so that we may find ourselves in the spaces of our sin and our addictions clinging to the cross. Reaching out in those moments where we're we're turning from our our unrighteousness and we cling to Jesus, the only one who can give to us righteousness. And we, we cling to him in his suffering. We cling to him in his dying. We cling to one who was tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. And so we, we hold to Jesus in these places. Why? That we might know the resurrection. There's a dying that's needed. Yes, there's a suffering to it, but it is so worth it because it's the only way to resurrection. You can't raise something from the dead if it hasn't died. We turn our attention to Matthew 13 in the gospel passage that Sarah read for us today. And we have these really beautiful parables uh, from Jesus that we'll look at briefly for a moment. And they're what we would call kingdom parables. They speak of the kingdom of God and they give us a a story or a metaphor to help us understand what the kingdom of God looks like. Now to just be really quick on it because I'm not preaching on the kingdom today, but so if that's new language for you, a kingdom, what's a kingdom and how do we know where it starts and where it ends? Well, a kingdom is anywhere where the king has his authority, right? So anywhere where a king is in charge, anywhere where a king rules, That's his kingdom. And what the scriptures teach us is that God's kingdom is all-encompassing. That at the end of the day, he's the king of kings. And so as we come to these spaces and to think about what does it look like then to live in his kingdom, Jesus wants to help us, and so he gives us these two parables. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went out and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul goes on to call us, or to say, by his own example, that I forget what lies behind, and I strive for what lies ahead. That I stream forward, ESV says, to what lies ahead. What I had, I counted all as rubbish. Why? Because he's experienced something like what Jesus has shown us in the parables. He found the treasure in the field. He found the pearl of great value. And it was none other, none less than Jesus himself. And so he's found the treasure, the prize, the goal. It's Jesus, that I might know him and be made like him. And Paul is ready to bet the farm. To let go of everything else to buy the, field, to buy the pearl. To take everything he has and acquire that field. For the sake of knowing Christ and him crucified. And so forgetting what lies behind all these things that we thought made us us, all these things that we thought gave us value, all these things that we thought impressed and made us worth knowing, loving, we lay it down, we lose our life, Jesus says, so that we can find it in Christ. And so we don't only forget what lies behind, Paul says, but we strain forward to what lies ahead. We we don't only give up on the, the treasure or the field or the pearls that we've known and weren't good enough, but we strive and do everything we can to take hold of the treasure, the prize, the pearl that has come to revelation in our lives pressing on towards the goal, the prize, of knowing Jesus, my Lord, he is the treasure, he is the pearl. Now, many of you who know me know I'm not a big sports guy, but I know that we've got some sports guys here. Uh, and I watched a Netflix documentary the other day. This is kind of how I do sports. I, I watch it on um, 100 times speed, um, as they, they walk us through. But it was uh, an incredible documentary that a few of us have talked about before called Quarterbacks. And they followed three NFL quarterbacks through their season. And one of them was a man named Kurt Cousins. And all the sports guys go, yeah. Kurt Cousins is one of the greatest uh, quarterbacks in the NFL presently and an incredible guy. But the other thing about him is he's an incredibly true and authentic man of faith who really loves Jesus And I was reading this article uh, of somebody who wrote having, um, I think it was in the Washington Post, who wrote after watching an episode where they kind of interviewed Kirk and talked to him about something particular. Let me read you um, what it is. This first, I'll start with the quote of, this is what Kirk said in in the documentary. If we're on a Sunday to Sunday schedule, unlike most quarterbacks, I choose to take Tuesday entirely off. About eight years ago, I made the decision that I'm going to truly rest for 24 hours a week during the season. I think, if, I think at first it threw the coaches off a little bit. Wait a minute, are starting quarterbacks not going to be in the building all day on Tuesday? We're not even going to see them? But it's just something that I felt was important. On Tuesday, I'll do anything that isn't football. On the specific Tuesday featured during the show, Cousins leads his kids into the car from preschool, takes a walk with his wife, answers fan mail, goes to the bookstore, and apparently never studies film of the upcoming opponent or self-scouts his own film or does anything whatsoever amid for preparations of the next game. I love it. Like, the guy writing this is just, as you read it, you're just perplexed. He's just like... On one hand, if it works for Kirk and his family, that's fine. Football season's a five-month grind, six for the teams that get the furthest, and he hasn't suffered for the habit financially. He's signed multiple significant contracts, and he'll get another one with the Vikings or someone else in 2024. On the other hand, and as Kirk admits, his refusal to work on Tuesday is unlike most quarterbacks. Most of them are working towards a goal of winning on Sunday. The quarterback of the team, the Vikings, will be facing, is working towards the goal of specifically beating Cousins. Remember what Tom Brady said in the trailer of his Tom vs. Time documentary. What are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up to be the best that you can be? You only have so much energy and the clock ticks on all of us. If you're going to compete against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I'm giving up mine. For Brady, that statement contains multiple truths. He has seven Super Bowl wins, and he's regarded as the greatest player of all time. However, his life eventually was indeed turned upside down, apparently in part by his inability to stop. Cousins has balance. That'll serve him well in the long term, but frankly, it might keep that space reserved in his Michigan memory room for a Lombardi trophy permanently empty. that but I love the honesty and I can hear the wrestle of the journalist can you I think part of the reason why I can hear it so well is because I have it myself I want to do this. I want to I want to follow Jesus. I want to I want to press I want to press forward. I want to pull stuff off in my life. I want to be known. I want people to remember my name. I want to you know, you go on and on and yon and, and you whatever your Lombardi trophy is, right? It's it's hanging out there and it tries to grab you constantly. Paul says, "Rubbish." And Kirk Cousins says, "Rubbish." It's not that Kirk is, a, I mean, you watch the documentary, he's incredibly disciplined. He works very hard at his, at his career. But what he can say is, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can't give that up for this. And it pulls us into this space. Now, the language of straining, the language of pressing on towards the goal, the prize, how's that hit you? It can sound dangerously close to works righteousness, can't it? It's kind of troubling when I read these passages, certainly in light of the Reformation and probably ever since. But in our current day, it hits us and we think, boy, that just sounds wrong. But we're reading the letter from the guy who pretty much like on the nose informed the Reformation. The one who stepped into the church when their works righteousness was ruling and said, this isn't right. So I think we have to step back and say, okay, wait a second. I don't think that's what Paul's saying, but it sounds like that. I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward for what lies ahead. I press on. here It just feels like my effort now is going to get me where I need to go. I hope that troubles you if that's how it sounds to you. It should, because if you're smart like most people, you know that you can't press on hard enough. You can't strain hard enough. You're not going to pull it off. It's clear that that's not what Paul's trying to say. Even if you look back at verses uh, 2 and 3 in this chapter, it's very clear right inside the letter itself. He actually starts the chapter off by telling them, look out for people who think like this, who think that by the flesh they can earn their salvation, who by their flesh can get Jesus to love them or to love them more. The question is this, what is this effort, this pressing on if not works righteousness? And I think it's an important question because there's something beautiful that Paul's inviting us to here. And if we only hear it as work righteousness, we're just going to dismiss it. And we're going to miss what I think is actually important for us today. I think when Paul talks about straining forward, when he talks about pressing on, when he talks about pursuing the prize, and Corinthians uses the language of a race, to run as if to win. What he's talking about isn't works righteousness. What he's talking about is the natural outflow of grace in our lives. What he's talking about is the right and true response of someone who found a treasure in a field. Someone who found a pearl of great value. To use the language here at Emmaus Road, someone who encountered Jesus. That having encountered Jesus, I start running. And I start shedding every weight that would hold me back from full, complete, in-depth communion and intimacy with him. I want him in my life. I need him in my life. And so this pursuit, this pressing on, is not driven by myself. It's actually instigated by and empowered by him. It's a response, not an instigation. Does that make sense? I press on not to make something happen, but I press on in response to a God who said, Hey, I see you. Would you come and let me love you? Hey, I see where you're stuck, would you come and let me help unstick you? I see where you're broken, come here, could I heal you? Where your mind is foggy and convoluted, would you like to come and let me clear it up? I see the train wreck behind you, come here. Could I help you fix it? Could I help you bring reconciliation? Could I help you bring freedom? All of a sudden, this pressing on feels different to me. I don't know if that helps you this morning, to put it in a different category, that the pressing on, that the the striving forward, that the effort is actually in response. You will never work harder and get God to love you more. It's not going to work. He already loves you completely. Your effort is never going to merit you anything with God. He gives freely. That's what we call grace. But it makes sense that having encountered him, you want to drop everything and follow. And it has been the story of men and women throughout generations. And so as you look at the things of your life and the things that over time you have clinged to and you have not wanted to let go, and even as you look at the things in your life that you're passionate about, like the Lombardi Trophy for Kirk, I want you to pay attention today to the question we ask when we start, do I want to know Jesus? And to consider all else in light of this central piece, which is to know and love him. friends, it'll change your life. And my encouragement to you today is that it will actually set you free. That when that's not the central pursuit of our life, anything else will start to crush you. One of the greatest joys and and gifts of my life is my marriage. And being able to be married to Jana is an incredible gift and grace from the Lord for me. It's a place of life for me. It's a place where I can be who I am. And when I'm not, she doesn't beat me up. She calls me out. So it's just a, just a beautiful thing that we have. But it begins to crush me the minute it takes the central place in my life. if it becomes the space where I look for my salvation, where I look to know that I'm okay, But when I look to Jesus, and I lay it down, when for me to live becomes Christ, and to die becomes gain, the beautiful picture is that suddenly my marriage is is even sweeter. It doesn't get lost. I find it. And so, in the forgetting all that lies behind, friends, let me give you some good news today. You will not end up just absolutely impoverished. Ah. Because we cling to all that stuff because we want, we need, we, you know, at the bottom of it, there's some real longing, there's some real needs. And the promise of Jesus is let it go. And I'll meet those needs. But I won't meet them in some kind of messed up way like that stuff did. I'll meet it truly. So I want to pray for you this morning. The passage ends with an encouragement to us that we are kingdom people. We are people who have found the pearl, who have found the treasure. And he encourages those of us who are mature to think like this. So part of what he's saying is as we grow, um, there is a suffering toddler in all of us. He says, listen, this call of God, this way of Jesus, let all who are mature think this way. And part of what he's he's speaking to the, the toddler in all of us. who goes, no, I want my way. I <laughs> care if my addiction isn't good that's the toddler, right? It's, it's the toddler who's just like, have you ever held on to a toddler who wanted to run off a cliff and if you let go, you're pretty sure they would? Right? It's the toddler in us who feels the suffering of being held, of being told no. Not because we want to rip you off of the joy of flying, but because you can't fly. You're a citizen, Paul reminds us, of heaven. And from it we wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What he's saying is, we are citizens of heaven who eagerly and confidently and with all the hope in the world can wait for the good news, the honest prayer answered, that I might know him and be made like him. Paul says that's exactly what's happening. Rest assured. So let's pray. God, this morning as we prepare to come to the table and we think about these words from Apostle Paul, we just want to take a moment, God, to consider in our own lives the spaces where by your spirit you're maybe asking us to forget what lies behind. And so Jesus, would you come right now And would you, by your Spirit, help us to see the things that are weighing us down and holding us back? The things that, in in the light of Jesus, quickly become rubbish. And give us the courage today, even as we come to a confession, give us the courage today to let go of those things. turn from, to forget what lies behind. And to strain, to press on for what lies ahead. Lord, for anyone in this space who answered our opening question of do you want to know Jesus with a yes, I just pray right now that as we come to this time around the table that we would have the incredible gift of an encounter with Jesus. Lord, that we might know you and be made like you.